On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are joined by Rick Zamperin, the king of 900 CHML Radio, to talk about LRT and grade 13 and the Maple Leafs and real estate and the Ticats and and just a teeny, teeny, tiny bit of COVID, as little as humanly possible. This is almost a COVID-free podcast, so you can, you can approach and not be worried about it. You can almost have a COVID-free experience by sitting down and listening right now. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The man you hear doing everything on this station, working all hours of the days and night, never takes a day off. And when he does, like this week, now this was lined up way before, but when he does take a week off, which is a real rarity, I end up having him booked for this evening and he says no no i'm fine i'll do it i'd love to do it that ladies and gentlemen is rick zamperin in a nutshell who joins me now rick how's your vacation going uh, it's almost over which is kind of sad but <laughs> in the same sense i really haven't accomplished much so i am kind of uh you know eager to get back to work on monday so at least i feel somewhat productive because all i've achieved this week is cutting the grass um, power washing the side of my garage and, uh, doing some grocery shopping. And, uh, that's about it. That, those, those are the, the highlights of the week, um, so far on my COVID-19 edition, <laughs> 2021 you know, vacation. Rick, for a lot of people, that is, that's not a bad productivity rate for a vacation. I mean, for a lot of people, vacation, and I, and I can't say that I'm not included, means the brain is turned off, nothing happens, and those chores, yeah, I know I got to get to them, but kind of not now. So I, I applaud you. I think you've been very productive. Yeah, it's been okay. You know, this is, you know, you're, you're in the news business as well. We, you know, we talk about pandemic stuff at nauseum, and I'm sure at times our listeners are thinking, you know, there's got to be something else to talk about. And listen, we're, we're looking for those things because... We want to talk about those things as well, whether it's a talk show or a newscast or a sportscast or whatever. Um, so, you know, getting a week off or taking a week off means, yeah, turning your brain off for at least part of the day or most of the day or some of the day. Because when we're at work, we're inundated with all sorts of info and bad news. And, yeah, there's some good news in there. And we try to weed through the all, all, the, all the rhetoric and get to the facts and try to tell you know, the most important stories that impact our listeners the most and over the past year as we know they've been you know some really hard hitting uh, dire stuff so yeah when you get a week off like i've had this week it's uh, an opportunity to recharge kind of reset uh, take a couple of breaths and then get ready for the next run which will start on monday well so here you're saying about weird stories i want to ask you about this and i want you to try and explain if you can the thought process behind so many people these days and social media, because there's a guy who is a, now people listening may not know his name. Uh, uh, what is his name here? I don't even know. Alexa Reed. All right. Most people will go, huh? I don't know who that is. Apparently he has thousands of followers on TikTok. And why does he have thousands of followers on TikTok? Because this genius's skill, if you want to call it that, <laughs> is that he does videos where get this, Rick, he licks things. All right. So this is his this is his contribution to the wider world and to society. He goes around to animals and stuff and licks them. And so he's in the news because he didn't realize he thought he was licking a jellyfish that he found washed up on a beach. And it was only when a bunch of his TikTok followers said, Hey, that's not a jellyfish. That's a Portuguese man of war. You could die by doing that. <laughs> He didn't, but here's my question. How have we gotten to a place in our world when people will literally do anything to get a few likes on social media? How have we become this shallow and this desperate and this needy? It really gives new meaning to 15 minutes of fame because in, in many respects, especially with these TikTok individuals, and listen, my, my two kids you know, watch and, and laugh and, you know, sometimes cry at TikTok videos because they're either so bad or they're really good or really funny. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, each of these individuals are trying to make their mark or trying to say, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing, uh, laugh at me, you know, yell at me, just engage. And I think they crave that attention, number one. 
And I think, you know, for a lot of them, it is lucrative because they can make a career. We've seen YouTubers make millions upon millions of dollars saying, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing. I think this is the generation of, um, you know, that attention grabbing, almost like a shock jock social media person or personality. And the weirder and the wilder and the nastier or grosser, it's going to get more likes, more shares, all that kind of stuff. And, and at the end of the day, maybe even more money in their in their back pocket. I, yeah, you're, and you're right. You're, you're a hundred percent right. But didn't like, when did it become a thing? When did humility, and I don't want to get really deep right off the bat here, but you know, when, where were the parents at one point who said, you know, it's okay for you not to be the center of attention all the time? Yeah. I I don't know if there's a particular year. It's kind of been a gradual thing, you know, just thinking back, you know, I'm in my mid forties. And I would say it's been at least, well, it's, it's got to be the birth of social media and YouTube and the internet because, you know, we're able to reach far and wide without having to actually go somewhere. Uh, you know, apart mm. from going to the movies and seeing something in that respect, you know, you can pretty much you know, go anywhere and see someone halfway around the world. You have no idea who they are or what they're doing or what they're all about, but you can see what they're doing. And I think, you know, that the, the birth of that kind of connectivity gave birth uh, or pushed along um, the accessibility of doing weirder and wackier things. Yeah, I guess. And look, I'm not, I'm not against social media and I'm not against people who do good social media. There's tons of people who do amazing stuff on there and it's creative and it's well put mm. together and it looks very professional. Just walking around and licking stuff and people fall. I mean, it just, <laughs> it, it, it makes me, it does make me worry for the future of society, but nonetheless. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, I said, the good news is we will not be talking about COVID today, maybe peripherally once or twice, but we're not talking about COVID. However, the bad news is if we're not going to talk about COVID, the other favorite topic that won't go away has to be on the agenda, and that is LRT, which <laughs> became news again this week because the federal and provincial government announced they're putting in $3.4 billion, and now it's up to the city and city council to decide if they want this or not. And, you know, it sounds like such an easy decision, except for the fact that we still don't know what the operating costs are going to be. And maybe it's still an easy decision. I don't know. When you look at this, does it seem to you that it's so easy that it doesn't matter what it's going to cost to run? Got to take it. Or do you say, no, I really want to know what it's going to cost and what my taxes are going to be affected and all the rest before I decide whether I want this? You know, as a taxpayer, I think we need to know, we need to know what this is going to cost. You know, if, if it's a ballpark, great. Uh, you know, I've heard anywhere from 10 to $30 million in terms of operating costs, which is going to have an impact on the bottom line in terms of our tax rate. The but in that sentence is, but there is going to be, as we've seen in other communities, an overwhelming amount of um uh, taxable dollars in terms of assessment with investment along the LRT line. Kitchener-Waterloo is a great example of you know a multi-billion-dollar uh, transit system that has attracted billions of dollars in investment along the line. Whether it's you know, restaurants, stores, you name it, the city is now able to tax those companies and those entities which, in theory, should offset the operating costs for this LRT. So, number one, yeah, we need to know the number. And I think city council has a right to know that number. But it's almost like the federal government and the provincial government have painted the city, or at least council, into a corner to say, number one, this $3.4 billion is for LRT only. Forget about talking about rapid bus transit. You don't need a referendum. Uh, You know, it's a take-it-or-leave-it kind of scenario. And that's all fine and well, but, it, you know, if if the city doesn't take that, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in terms of that kind of money coming to our city for a specific project that should, at the end of the day, have a huge impact on our bottom line, on our the energy in the city. And I know it's only a lower city project, but I think it has far-reaching value in terms of making our city feel just a little bit bigger. But, yeah, we need to know what that operating cost is going to be. Okay, so the follow-up to that, and I think, look, anytime we talk about this, half the people who are listening are saying, I agree with you 100%. we got to take this no matter what. The other half are saying, no, I'm, I got some questions still or I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the second one just for a second because the first one is, is a very easy one. For those who are in favor of it, and that's totally fine, 
there's nothing to talk about here. But should you, based on what you just said, if you, should a city councillor be put in the position where they would potentially have to vote on this if they don't know what the operating costs are? What would you say to a councillor or what would you say to anyone if the vote, if it came time to vote and we still didn't know what the operating costs were, what would you say? My recommendation, if I was a consultant, my recommendation would be you're either going to, you're going to live and die with this vote. If you say, yes, uh, let's go for it. And these operating costs are you know, 45, 50 million, much more than we thought it was going to be. You're obviously not going to, you know, you can have egg on your face. And saying that, if it is 30 million or, or even less, you know, I think you come out as, you know, a, a winning council. You made a right decision. If I'm on council, I'm looking at this project not only in terms of operating costs, but the potential it can bring. But I know that I know the flip side. Uh, and, you know, one of the arguments is, you know, what if LRT, we've seen ridership on the HSR kind of go down over the years. What if LRT is not the be all and end all and people aren't hopping on that just to, to see what it's all about or to go from McMaster to Eastgate Square or somewhere in between? What if the ridership isn't there? What if the economic oomph isn't there in terms of new business along the route or, or connected with the route? And if that doesn't materialize, then those operating costs are not going to be offset by all that taxable, uh, you know, dollars. So, yeah, this is a this is a huge decision. It's not an easy decision because without that operating cost knowledge, um, you know, the city councilors are kind of fighting this battle in the dark, not knowing what's on the other side. Yeah, to, to answer your question, I had an emailer last night when we were talking about this on the show who said, if it costs too much after it's built, if it costs too much to run, just shut it down. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're <laughs> we're we're in this thing. And, you know, I mean, here's where this thing gets really interesting. And we got to take a break, unfortunately, really moving fast tonight. But, you know, if it turned out, and I don't expect it to be the 40 million or something that you're talking about. I don't expect it to be so off the rails, pardon the pun. But you may then, council may find itself saying, you know, we decided to go with this. We now have some very difficult decisions to make on other things in the city. And, you know, then some of the people who may have been saying, take it no matter what, are going to be angry that you say, yeah, but we, now we're going to have to make some cuts or really raise taxes. You know, you're, I think what you're doing is you're probably good. What's what we're probably going to see is you're going to take it and you're going to cross your fingers and pray that you don't end up with a big surprise. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be the hope. We will see. I mean, this look, it's so interesting because so many people are saying, hey, we're at the finish line. And as I said, I don't think we're near the finish line. We have got a vigorous, probably angry discussion to happen still before we figure this thing out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. While I was on Twitter this week doing something, I noticed that something was trending that I had not expected to see. And that was grade 13. Why? Well, you know, it's something that I wrote this. Uh, no, it wasn't about me, but I wrote something probably close to a year ago. And it seems that some other people share the view. And that is when students have lost from March, April, May into June last year. And then with home teaching and remote learning and the confusion and everything this year, we're falling behind. Our kids are falling behind. I want to bring Rick Zamperin back in because Rick, you have kids. Uh, you have kids who are in school. Uh, my suggestion and what seemed to be a lot of other people's suggestions now as well is, you know what, because of what's been going on, we can't send our kids out of the school system having basically lost half a year or a year's worth of school. We need to add grade 13, if only temporarily, to give kids a chance to catch up. What do you think about the idea? Yeah, I, no, I, at first blush, my thought is, so if you're in grade 12 right now um, and, and you've missed some time, or at least you've gone back and forth, you've been in school or out of school uh, for the better part of a year, um, what is the advantage of getting extra credits in grade 13? Now, if you need those credits, uh, yeah, you know, that you should, you should be given that opportunity. I think, you know, if you need an extra credit or two, they'll, they'll let you stick around. But in terms of you know, I think you need 30 credits in high school, uh, plus all those volunteer hours, which have been cut, you know, from 40 down to 20. Um, you know, I think it, it all depends on what you're going to be and, 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 you know, what your future career plans are. 
And grade 13, you know, you might not even need, might not even need it. When I was in school, it was, you know, grade 13 was the OAC year. Um, and I didn't need it. I, you know, that wasn't my career path. I wasn't going to be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer, and I didn't need a bunch of extra or unique credits. But I think for many, that would be, you know, an, an, uh, uh, an option that they would want because, A, they've been yanked in and out of school. Their past year has been really a write-off in terms of learning at the pace and the structure that they've been accustomed to. So I think it would be quite advantageous to offer a grade 13 just to, especially going into post-secondary, give them a little more rhythm and, you know, those credits that they need uh, going into that, you know, uh, next stage of their education. See, I'm not even looking at it for the credits idea, the extra credits. I'm looking at it that I think that it's the kids who are moving through school right now, and we know that by and large, kids don't get failed anymore. You don't fail classes and you don't fail grades anymore. No one gets held back. You're being pushed through. And you may be coming into say grade 11 right now. And like after this year, we're at the end of the year now, you were in grade nine and you missed almost a third of grade nine. Grade 10 has been who knows what. And now you're going into grade 11 and you may not be anywhere close to knowing the stuff that in typical times you would need to know in grade 11. Mm-hmm. and I don't think there's any possible way for us to expect you're going to catch up in the next year, two years. Well, and the only we... way is to allow for an extra year at the end and say, okay, we're going to do this right. We're going to catch you up and then we're going to move you through. Yeah. The perfect example today, it's kind of funny you mentioned this, this topic today, my son says, I need some help. And, and I mean, this is usually the case because, you know, he's got projects that, uh, you know, require uh, an extra set of eyeballs or, or, or some input. So he's in a uh, hospitality and tourism class in uh, in high school, and uh, he says he needs some help. I'm like, hey, I'm on vacation, perfect timing. Let's sit down and, and hammer through this. And it's uh, he has to do a presentation on uh, he's he's basically a wedding planner, and you have this budget between twenty five thousand and forty thousand, and you got to you know plan the perfect wedding for this couple. And um, and I said, wow, this is you know this is a unique project. And I see the the title page. This is the culminating projects. So instead of exams, they have these culminating projects, which are kind of, you know, big, you know, really uh, intricate uh, kind of projects or presentations. And I thought, wow, culminating already? Like, it just seemed like you started this uh, hospitality and tourism uh, course like two, three weeks ago. And, and that's basically the extent of it. You know, these, these classes, these condensed classes are about three, four, five weeks long. And uh, there's no final exam. It's obviously a different feel because they're not in the classroom. And yeah, maybe offering grade 13, if they're back in the classroom for sure, and I think obviously they would be this fall, um, to get them to catch up or, or feel a little bit more normal before they go into college, university. I think, yeah. uh, I think it's a pretty good idea. Please tell me that when he does this project about being a wedding planner, he does it in the voice of Frank, the Martin Short character from Father of the Bride. <laughs> that, that would get him bonus marks, I think. But no, again, it's not about embarrassing kids. It's not about dragging things out. It's about the fact that, well, I don't know what percentage now of kids go to college or university. It's a pretty good percentage. And I just can't believe that uh, now, unless universities begin lowering their standards, but if you have lost a big chunk of what you would have normally done, and now we throw you into the ocean and you haven't learned how to swim, we're only setting you up for failure rather than saying, look, we understand it's going to take a year longer, but we want to make sure that this, this doesn't become something that affects you for the rest of your life just to hurry you along. Yeah, the thing is, and I've talked about this, and I know we've got to go to break here, but I've talked about this with coworkers in terms of you know, I'd hate to be a, a, a kid last year in grade 12, and that was it. You know, your, your high school is over. And even this year yeah. in grade 12, you don't yeah. get that kind of natural or, you know, customary ending. It's, it really or sports feels, or drama or yeah, band or anything. That. Yeah, it, it's almost like they've been cheated out of it. No, absolutely they have. And, that, and I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know about you, my school experience, when I think of my school experience, last on the list is what happened in class. It was sports and band and drama and yearbook and everything else. And then, oh yeah, I also did classes. I couldn't imagine missing out on that stuff. Yeah. That's tough. Let me hear what you think, by the way. I'm not talking about Rick right now. I'm talking to you who are listening. Radley at 900CHML.com. What do you think about the idea of grade 13? Not permanently. We don't want to bring it back permanently necessarily, just for a couple of years while the kids who are working through high school right now who have missed out 
just to give them a chance to catch up. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rick, I want to ask you this. The Washington Post, reputable paper. No one's looking at this and saying it's a rag or it's tabloid or anything else. It is a reputable paper that people look to for credible ideas and commentary and everything else. I want to read you a headline and I want you to tell me if you agree with this. Our politics, and they're they're talking about American politics, but I I think we can apply it across the board. I think it applies everywhere. Our politics are no uglier or more dysfunctional than in the past. And they have written a piece saying, look, politics has always been blood sport. Politics has always been mean and nasty. We just think it's more dirty now than it ever has been before. Agree or disagree? I will agree to an extent. I think it's it's just as dirty, but I think we are exposed to way more than we ever have, whether it's cable news networks, social media, uh, newspaper, magazines, online stories, uh, radio, TV. It's It's out there all the time, everywhere in our face, and we are just consuming a lot more of it, and it's become a lot more divisive. But I think it's always been there. I think it's always been nasty. It it may seem a little nastier than it's always been, but I think it's just how we're perceiving it. It's always been, uh, you know, mudslinging and and name calling and, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. And we're just interpreting it, I think, at a much more rapid pace now. So it's exposure that's led to this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's politics has been dirty since, you know, day one, <laughs> back in the Roman Empire and, and the Egyptian Empire and, and everywhere in between. Uh, and, and whether it's U.S. politics or Canadian politics or no matter what the nation is, uh, we just we just see a lot more of it now. The difference, and, and you know, you, I think you're right, and I was going to say the difference is And then I'm thinking, but, you know, even as I say that in Rome, I mean, you know, Julius Caesar was assassinated and, uh, you know, in in Egypt, we know of pharaohs who were killed Mm -hmm. for people trying to seize power. The difference, it seems to me, is that was always those at the very top. That was the people who were involved. It seems the difference is now the spectators, now the peanut gallery are more angry than ever before. It was the politicians who were fighting with each other before. Now it's everybody. Yeah, oh, there's there's definitely more involvement from a societal standpoint. Uh, you know, Joe Blow down the street will have an opinion on you know something that you know the president or the prime minister or the premier did, and and I think social media has kind of lent that uh, conversation or kind of pushed it along in terms of uh, making it more accessible and 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 washable and, and relatable, and and everyone can jump in. So I think that is a big reason for it, but. From a political standpoint, from politicians, they've always been, you know, in the mud kind of slinging it. But yeah, no, I, w- I would agree with you from a from a observer standpoint or from the non-politicos out there. Uh, everyone's got an opinion and now they're just able to unleash it easier and faster. And and the thing that when I say about the peanut gallery, here's, here's where I really thought, I think where the difference is. We started this by talking about LRT. We started the show today talking about LRT. You can have an honest opinion about the LRT. I can have an honest opinion about the LRT. Everybody listening can have an honest opinion about the LRT. They are entitled to think what they want to think. You may be for it. You may be against it. You may have your reasons one way or the other. But it seems now that if I'm pro-LRT and you're anti-LRT, it's not just a case where you just have a difference of opinion. You're a bad person. You're an evil person who only wants badness and you're elitist. You don't care about lower income people and the lower city and, you know, and then on the other hand, if you want the LRT, well, you don't care about, you know, people who pay taxes and you don't care about other parts of town. It's no longer that we can have a discussion. If you don't agree with me, I hate you. You are evil. And that's a big difference to me. Yeah. And the middle has really disappeared. It's, it's either you're either on the right or you're on the left and there's nothing in between. There is a canyon in between and you are it's impossible to meet in the middle somehow, um, which I still don't understand because there's always a middle. ground. There should be a middle ground. There's got to be some kind of compromise or some kind of agreement or, you know, push and pull, uh, you know, for every action, there's a reaction or for every reaction, there's an action. Uh, but that's how it all disappeared in the political world. And for, I'm not sure what the reason is. I think. Oh, I know. I think I know. 
I, I think I, I have an idea. I have a theory. And that is there in the past, Rick, there were certain things that you held as morals, as moral yeah. imperatives. And you, you, you could bend on anything else, but your morals, you wouldn't give into. Now it seems like we see everything as a moral. So once again, the LRT using one example, it's no longer that we can have, I am morally correct. If I believe one way or the other, that's different. If you have, if you believe it's a moral imperative, you will not bend. Yeah, you're 100% right there because that yeah that that's the unbendable uh, morality of the situation if I could put it that way. But it's it's you know that shouldn't be the case. I mean, there's only a certain amount of morals that we should be uh, you know willing to bend on, uh, and you know everything else I think is negotiable because it's not it's not right or wrong. You know whether you're building the LRT or not. There's there's positives and there are cons to that equation as well. It's not one way or the other. There's a lot of gray area in that kind of decision. I would argue that there are four or five or six, I don't know, we, we could go through it, moral, like deeply moral discussions that we can have that affect us and affect our lives. And a lot of the other stuff is opinion, but that is not something that you would look at and say, you know what, if I had to stand before my creator and I didn't stand up for this, I would be seen as being morally wrong. Yeah, we make yeah. it that way, but I don't, I, I don't think that's the case, but we've turned it into that. And, and, but uh, th it's an interesting argument that our politics is no more angry than before. I think our politicians may not be angrier than before. Maybe they are, but I think everyone around it is. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. My guest tonight, in addition to doing the news and being the, I can't remember his job title now, assistant program director or something. He's got a news director. He's got a million different titles. He does everything. He works 18 hours a day. He's on call nonstop. He also is co-host of the Hamilton and Niagara real estate show, which you can hear here on CHML each Saturday morning. And so Rick Zamperin, I want to tap into your real estate expertise here, since I know your exposure with Rob to Rob Golfie and all of his great thoughts have melded in, dripped in, and all that kind of stuff. And you now are an expert on this. Read a piece this week in the Spectator with an interesting idea, and that was because we've got such a overheated, crazed real estate market that people just can't afford to buy a house anymore. One thing that maybe should be considered is a ban on blind bidding. These auctions where you say house is for sale, but we're not taking any bids until next Saturday and then put your bid in and we don't tell you what anyone else is going to bid. And so give us your best shot, which seems to lead to prices that are like a hundred thousand, 200,000 over asking. Would you be in favor of banning something like that? Or is that a bad idea? Funny you mention that. That is one of the topics we will be discussing tomorrow morning, starting at nine on CHML on the Rob Golfie real estate show, Hamilton edition. Uh, blind bidding is great for the seller and it's bad for the buyer because basically if you have a $500,000 house and it's up for sale for half a million dollars and you have, you know, five people bidding on this thing, you don't know what the other person is, is willing to pay or is putting on the table. That's the blind bid. So you are, it's almost like a silent auction. You're putting your best foot forward. So the highest bid might be 750. And the next highest bid might be 550. And of course, the home seller is going to look at this and say, "Well, I'd be crazy not to take 250 thousand dollars over asking. I'm going to sell for that price." The ripple effect is the next person down the line in that neighborhood with a house that's very comparable and is selling within the same kind of time frame is looking at that sale price to say, well, "Wait a minute, that house just got 750." There's no way I'm going to list mine for 600. I'm going to go maybe 715. And there you get the instant price escalation uh, in a seller's market, especially with low supply, which is what we have right now. I know it is creeping up in terms of the availability of houses on the market, but that's where the that's where the blind bidding process really mm. hurts the buyer. And now, especially if you're a first time home buyer, how are you going to get into the market? So I would be in favor of ending the blind bidding process and going to what Australia uses, for example, and they have an auction type of style of, of home selling. Uh, you know, you pick a day out of the week. It's a Saturday afternoon. Anyone who's interested in this house for $500,000 is going to show up on auction day, and you are going to be able to bid what you want. So you might start at 515, and the next person says, hey, I'm going to go 525, and you're willing to go to 550, maybe your max. 
and the other person's max may be 575. So instead of selling this house for 750 and creating that ripple effect for others in the neighborhood, you're now selling it for 575. Great for the home buyer, keeping prices low. The home seller obviously is losing out on that huge kind of uh, um, uh, basically putting all that money into either equity into the next home or yeah, you know, windfall, really. Yeah. I, the the only problem I have with this is that I, I, I'm very uncomfortable anytime government starts getting into the market yeah. and into deciding what you can do and how much you can make. And, you know, we've heard people say, well, we should cap salaries. Nobody can make more than this amount. Well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, why not? If you create a product that everybody wants to buy, why can you not make more money? And look, I'm, I, I, I'm not in that category, by the way, just in case anyone's wondering that, oh, Radley, no, I don't. But I look at it and I go, if if you want to work harder, if you want to work longer, if you want to come up with your ideas and invest your money and do these things. So it's the same to me with a house. I'm very uncomfortable anytime the government would say, no, you can't. Because, Rick, I look at this and I think, would the government do this to its own products? Right. Yeah. And I don't think they would. Yeah, you're really stunting free enterprise at the end of the day. You know, there might be a homeowner who's put in a lot of money in renovations, has amazing landscaping, they have a pool in the backyard, and, you know, maybe they should get 250 over asking because, you know, they've put in a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of their hard-earned money into developing and improving their home. Um, so I can understand the other side of the equation in terms of the blind bidding, and it's been here forever, and it's working yep. relatively well. It's it's right now, obviously, it's in the spotlight. If if we took away blind bidding, this is the other part. I'm not sure that this means, oh, prices are going to go down. I think what it means is people are going to now set their sale price higher, higher. than they would have thought they would get. And, you know, yeah. one way or another, the, the market finds its level. And so your example of the $500,000 home that you know that someone in the neighborhood got seven hundred, well, I'm just going to start at seven hundred then. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, then, and so be it. So you're, you're going to end up at the same place or close to it. Pretty much, and you're you're still eliminating that first time home buyer who there's no way they're going to afford a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar house right out of the gate with you know a very limited amount of resources in terms of a down payment and, and affording the monthly uh, mortgage payment. So yeah, at the end of the day, you're you're coming to the same equation. And believe me, it's not that I am not sympathetic to those first time home buyers. I've got two adult kids who are both working now and. You know, they, they will, if they're not already, they would soon be at the point where they would be in the market. It's going to be really tough. I just, I just, I, I'm, as I say, I'm very nervous when you start having government set rules on what people can make or can't make or, you know, and yeah, I know there are the Jeff Bezoses and the Bill Gates of the world. There's not very many of those. I mean, I know they're out there. I know they have more money than they ever could possibly spend. <laughs> Um, it's, 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 it's a little uncomfortable when, when you have bureaucrats deciding on what the maximum is. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I, I know you were a huge Italian soccer fan. I mean, the, the, anyone who's not been in Rick's office, and I'm assuming that's most people listening, unless they're doing <laughs> tours of CHML that I don't know about yeah. giant poster of the Azuri up on the wall with that. And that was the Paolo Rossi year, correct? 1982. Yeah, that was that was the first, the final. I never saw the Italy Brazil. Yeah, I think it was the quarterfinal, quarterfinal, semifinal, which was one of the most. Philip Anderson tells me this. Our chief engineer at CHML tells me the story about the 1982 Italy Brazil uh, quarterfinal semifinal match being the greatest soccer game he's ever seen. I've seen it in kind of a highlight form, and it looked absolutely amazing. But the first ever soccer game I watched was the 1982 World Cup final between Italy and West Germany at the time. And Italy ended up winning that final 3-1. to one. And Paolo Rossi was the big star of that 1982 World Cup in Spain. But I remember that because I was in my grandparents' basement. We were all watching the game. And every time Italy would score, my brother and I would run out into the streets and we would congregate with our neighborhood friends celebrate for a couple of seconds and then run back inside to watch the rest of the game. So that, that was my first exposure to soccer and I was hooked from there. Well, so I was, uh, I remember, and I don't know why I remember this, but I watched, I didn't watch that game. I was at a Blue Jays game at Exhibition Stadium and they kept showing the score up on the light bright scoreboard. Like they used to, the kind of same kind of scoreboard they used to have at Tim, at uh, Iverwind Stadium way back in the day. But um, that, I I lived in Toronto. I grew up in Toronto and I had to go down 
by Bathurst and St. Clair the next day after Italy won. Or maybe it was the day Italy, I don't know. Anyway, the, I was on a TTC bus and that entire intersection in Little Italy, mm-hmm. the entire TTC bus was being rocked back and forth when it got to a red light with all the people who, nothing, nothing vandal or malicious or anything like that. It was just a celebration, but I had not seen that before. That was my introduction to Italian soccer fandom. And um, certainly euphoric time. That's for sure. I was seven at the time, but uh, yeah, I was hooked on the game. It was, it was amazing. Can't even imagine what it was like in Hamilton, <laughs> what it was like in <laughs> Hamilton back then. Yeah. Um, we, I said at the top of the show that we were not going to be talking about COVID and that had been my intent, but I just, there was a story that they came up with on the news or they didn't come up with, they, they reported on the news just during the break. And I looked it up as we were in the break and I want to read you something. Cause uh, honestly, Rick, I, it's the story about if we have 75% of people double vaccinated by fall, we can sort of get back to sort of normal. And this quote, this line, Federal Minister of Health Patty Haidu says that if by the fall 75% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, more restrictions will be lifted and quote, we can enjoy more activities indoors with people from outside our household. I'm sorry, if 75% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, the government better get out of the way and say, we've done enough here. This, this to me, Maybe others will disagree. This to me sounds like the kind of government clinging to controls that we don't want. This is too much. If you've got 75% of the population, let's get back to normal life. 100%, but let me play devil's advocate here. So you have 25% of the population that has received either one or no doses at all, because there are some, and we've heard it, uh, that don't plan to get a vaccine. They're they're either in the anti-vax movement, quote unquote, or you know they just have no interest because they figure others will be vaccinated. There'll be that herd immunity. I don't really want to you know put my body through that or deal with possible blood clots, as we know that's been a thing certainly with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, so that for that twenty five percent, and here's one of the things that I don't think we know one hundred percent is how long. Uh, does the efficacy last in terms of one or two doses? We know that with the first dose, you know, I got my AstraZeneca dose a week or so ago. And we know that the protection level, so to speak, is 65, 67, maybe 70 percent, which is keeping a lot of people out of hospital, which is keeping a lot of people, you know, a a long ways away from a serious illness or or potential death. But how long does that 70 percent level, let's take that number, for example, last? And after one or two or three or six months uh, without a second dose, does that drop at all? And how much does it drop by? And and once we get that second dose, how long does that last? Are we good for a year? Do we have to get another dose in a few months? That's, I think, the big unknown right now. But I'm totally on your side. If if we get to 75%, I mean, open up everything because, you know, let's go to the malls. Let's go to the amusement parks. Let's go to sporting events. Let's do our thing. Leave us to do our thing, and we'll take care of ourselves. Because what we know is one dose is keeping us, most of us, out of the hospital. So 75% of us have two doses. I I think the worry of the the overwhelming rush to uh, hospitalizations and potential deaths is going to be greatly reduced. So I know I started off as a devil advocate by I'm coming around to your side because they got to open things up. Well, look, and Rick, your point is fair. Your point is fair. We don't know about these vaccines and the efficacy and how long they'll last. That's a totally fair point. But if we were to follow that and say, because we don't know, we cannot open things back up. That means we will be in lockdown or controlled situations forever. Mm-hmm. And and that to me is the problem here. That to me, when I read a quote like this, it sounds like government overreach that the the point the job of the government i believe in this is to do what they need to do and get out of the way and get us back to normal as fast as possible not to cling to these controls yeah and and I the mean, longer this goes on the more people will ignore them anyway the golf course scenario is the perfect example because as we know ontario is the only jurisdiction I think on the planet, I've seen the maps, they've got to be true, <laughs> that is not allowing uh, people to participate on public or private golf. You can't go play golf because of what Premier Four said. You know, the real problem is the buddies afterwards are going and hanging out and having pops, which is not the case. 
uh, and, and wouldn't be the case if they were open. And it wasn't the case last year. We, we did not have any examples of outbreaks at or related to golf courses, even though many of them were allowed to open. And I think this is a prime example of the science saying it's just not going to happen on the golf course or anywhere around it. It should be allowed. And the government saying, no, we're going to put our foot down. It's not going to be allowed because we don't want people to congregate in or around or after a round of golf. Well, you also mentioned something else just a moment ago, and you said if, you know, 75% are double vaccinated, let's get back to being normal and let's get back to going to things. And you said sports events. That's an Mm -hmm. interesting one you bring up there because Lisa McLeod, who is the Ontario Minister of Sport and she's Heritage and Tourism and there's something else in there. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, uh, big, big title has not yet given the CFL clearance to go ahead with its season. Now, we know the CFL is supposed to be starting in August. It got pushed back. And the thought is that the players will be safe enough to play by then. But she has said at the start, anyway, she doesn't really have a lot of optimism. There will be fans in the stands. And then the question was asked, well, what about the Grey Cup in Hamilton on December the 12th? And she said, here's her quote to the Canadian press, It is my hope that Hamilton will be home to the Grey Cup this coming fall. Obviously, public health conditions will continue to dictate whether that's possible or not. What is the percentage you're putting on a Grey Cup celebration and party in Hamilton come December? I'd love to say 100%, and I think I'm leaning towards that. But as we've seen with this government, uh, both provincial and federal, we can't, you know, it can't, can't exclude one without including the other. Um, you know, if they look at the number and say, and, and they don't like it, uh, it's not up to the CFL or anyone else to say, hey, we're going to play. As we've seen, governments are, uh, have really hold the anvil in this situation to say, you're going to play by our rules. But in saying that, if 75% of the population is going to be vaccinated, let's say by that August 5th target date, why can't there be some fans in attendance? Tim Hortons Field has a capacity of, let's just call it 25,000. Why can't you have 10,000 people in there or 8,500 if you want to be extra safe or even 5,000 if you want to be extra, extra cautious? There can't be any fully vaccinated fans in attendance at any sporting event or Do you concert? want 8,500? Do you want a Grey Cup with 8,500 where you can't have any Grey Cup parties and nothing like that? Do I mean, uh, look, I think we all want the Grey Cup here, but do we want that Grey Cup here? We don't want that Grey Cup. I was referring to an August 5th or even a Labor Day. You know, let's, okay. have, half, let's have half capacity. But by sure. December 12th, if we, if, you know, if we have 35 million Canadians vaccinated or whatever the number is, um, why can't we all get, why can't it be a full house? I mean, we're fully vaccinated. The masks are off. Uh, I, I don't understand why the government would look at any sort of numbers, because I would assume if we're all vaccinated fully with two doses, that those hospitalizations are going to be basically null and void. It's almost going to be like a typical, in this past season, a typical flu season where you have you know, some hospitalizations. A lot of people die from the flu. That's still a thing. Despite having a flu shot, some people don't get it. Um, it could be like a typical kind of flu season. It's it's a much, obviously, deadlier virus if you're not vaccinated against it. But if we're fully vaccinated, um, I say open up the doors and let us let us go watch. And if we're not fully vaccinated, or at least the option, because again, you're right, not everyone is going to take it. But if we don't, if everybody has not by that point had the option to get two vaccines, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, everybody involved with the federal government who is involved in procuring vaccines should be on a boat to Greenland never to return back <laughs> again, because that will be a failure of such epic and colossal proportions yeah. that it would be unfathomable. And, and, and you know that there will be federal politicians who will be intending to show up at a Grey Cup game to take their moment of glory. If they can't have a full house on December the 12th, if you're a federal politician, don't show up. You, you, you will not be warmly received. At least I wouldn't think so. I can almost guarantee, uh, you know, you, you can't write this down. We, we can't 100% rubber stamp this, but I can almost guarantee, especially what we've been through, especially what the CFL has been through, and especially with the promise of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who said every Canadian who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by September. We know that the Grey Cup is December 12th. I can almost guarantee that he is going to be at Tim Hortons Field 
this December to party with Hamilton, uh, whether the Ticats are there or not, to almost as a political kind of, hey, this is our national championship game. This is our game. I'm here. The pandemic has been defeated. We're all vaccinated. Hip, hip, hooray. Yay, Canada. Vote for me in, in 2022. Uh, he, he's going to be there. No doubt about it. All right. And how on with among CFL fans who presumably would make up a great number of the people in a great cup, some will go just for the party, but many would be yeah. fans. How will a prime minister who refused to loan or give any money to the CFL that didn't, that prevented them from playing last year and doesn't sound like money is coming this year. How will he be received among CFL fans? Well, he's going to be booed regardless. <laughs> you know, all politics. The not. Gary Bettman of politics. That's exactly what it is. He's the Roger Goodell, basically, of Canada. Uh, you know, I think for the most part, all will be forgotten, especially if the Tiger Cats are there and, you know, the bulk of fans from Hamilton are there. Uh, whether you love her or hate him, he's going to get booed. But I think more off, more fans than not will say, you know what? It was the pandemic. Uh, the government tried its best, we think, we hope. Uh, and it wasn't in the cards for the CFL, but at least our game is back. And I think most fans will feel comfortable or at least uh, are happy that, you know, football is back and, and they might just forget the whole thing from what happened last year. All right. So we got a few more minutes and I have to ask you this because I mentioned that if you go into Rick's office, there is a giant portrait po- poster of the Azuri, the Italian national team. The other great passion that you see in Rick's office, if you walk in there, other than those stickhead pictures of Greg Marshall as the coach of the Ticats <laughs> from years and years ago, um, yeah. the long story. But other than those, the other great thing that is very abundantly clear is a passion of Rick is the Toronto Maple Leafs, mm-hmm. who begin their first playoff series with the Montreal Canadiens since 1979 next Crazy. Thursday. Yeah. As a Leaf fan, as a diehard Leaf fan, are you tingling with excitement at this or are you trembling in terror of what might happen if they lose this thing <sighs> there's a bit of both to be honest <laughs> the the tingling and excitement is you know i've i've never seen this you know i wasn't watching sports when i was five years old uh i, I might have been watching but didn't really realize you know what was actually happening it was you know early 80s when i tuned into you know, sports and hockey and soccer and the, and the whole bit. So I've never seen the Leafs and Habs in a playoff series. So I'm excited to see that dichotomy because we've seen it in the regular season. It's one of hockey's greatest rivalries, uh, especially because the fans get on each other. But, you know, both teams have some exceptional players. The Leafs are favored going in, but they've been in this position before. And in playoff years gone by, they have not lived up uh, to, you know, to their hype and their talent level. They haven't won a playoff series, I think, in, in, uh, since 2013. It's been a long, long time. We know they haven't won the Cup since 67. The last time they beat the Canadians in a playoff series was 1967, mm-hmm. so that might be a sign. But the, the flip side is, and this is the pessimistic Leafs fan in me, is that look what Montreal did to Pittsburgh last year. And this is a team that, yeah, was riddled with injuries this season, but still have some really top-level talent in guys like Gary Price, Shea Weber, Brendan Gallagher's coming back. Cole Caulfield looks like the real deal. There's so many great pieces in Montreal. And at the best of seven, as we've seen year in and year out, not only with the Leafs but other teams, anything can happen. You get a hot goalie. You get a power play that's clicking. You get a couple bounces your way. You win a couple of a couple of games in overtime. And suddenly the series is over and you're playing golf, or at least not in Ontario. Well, and the reason I ask is because if you are a Leaf fan – well, for both teams, there's no more annoying group of fans than the six people who support the Ottawa Senators. Um, but beyond that, if you're a Leaf fan, there is no more annoying and antagonizing fan than a Montreal fan. And if you're a Montreal fan, the Leaf fan drives you nuts. You know that if you're a Leaf fan and you lose this series, the abuse and stuff that you're going to hear from Montreal fans forever Oh, yeah. is going to just be impossible. Like you won't, you'll have to eliminate your Twitter account and your Facebook account. Might as well just jump out of the basement window because it's, it's not going to get any <laughs> lower than that. It's going to be, it's going to be atrocious. <laughs> and I'm, and there's a part of me that's kind of preparing myself for that, that possible reality. It, it might happen. I mean, stranger things have happened. That's for sure. If you're a Leaf fan, how could you not? 
I mean, and really, I'm not, I'm not dumping on them, but yeah. you've, you know, with what you've gone through in all of our lifetimes, I mean, look, I, I was born months after the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup. I haven't been alive for one. You haven't been alive for one. Mm-hmm. The times that the Leafs have had their moments of being really good, always, even when they're good, they end in something horribly distressing, like the Carrie Fraser no call on Wayne Gretzky or, yeah. you know, something like that. And more often than not, though, they're not good. We've watched them stink the joint out. And so there is just an expectation. It's an expectation built into Leaf fans that something will go awry. Yeah, and, you know, the tricky part of it, too, and, and something that gets uh, your hopes up is seeing the Chicago Cubs and their 100-and-whatever-a-year yeah. drought for a World Series championship a few years ago. So, you know, you see that and you think, why can't the Leafs do that? You know, why can't good things happen to the Maple Leafs? And, you know, they, they do have some wonderful players on their team, but for whatever reason, they just have not been able to get over that hump. And uh, in, in recent memory, that hump is the first round. So if they can do that, who knows? That that might be the elixir that sends them a long, long way. Uh, but if they lose in the first round, my oh my, I'm, I might go on another vacation. Well, and the other thing is, here's why I believe, because I just said that, you know, that you expect something to go wrong if you're a Leaf fan, unfortunately. Here's why I believe that they are going to do really well this spring, because this is the first year that you can't watch it in person. You can't watch it at Maple Leaf Square. You can't watch with (laughs) friends. You can't watch in a bar. It, It would be so fitting. And we've talked about this before. It would be so fitting if the time when nobody can celebrate, there wouldn't be a Stanley Cup parade. It would be so fitting this would be the year they finally do it. And everyone goes, really? This year? Of all the years, this is the yeah. year you decide to win? Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be celebrating on my street. <laughs> You'll run out with the other Italian kids and celebrate right. between goals like you did before. Right. We'll give virtual high fives and back into our basements. <laughs> you know, it, I'll say this. If... And once again, we've been conditioned to, when we say, if the Leafs ever win, to go, ha, 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 Leafs. If they did win this year, I don't care what Patty Haidu or Doug Ford or Lisa McLeod or the police or anyone else says, if the Leafs were to win the Stanley Cup, you would have people pouring into the streets saying, I, go ahead and arrest me. I don't care. We're having a street party. Yeah, And, I, I mean- and you couldn't stop it. Yeah, it, it's it's a it would literally be a once in a lifetime event that you would just throw your hands up in the air and say I, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and go party and if I get COVID, so be it. The Leafs have just won the cup. That would be quite the scene. It would be. Um, it would literally. You know, when people say I can now die happy, they might literally fall into that <laughs> trap. But at least they they would be happy, I guess. Uh, Rick Zamper, we always appreciate you doing this, especially on your vacation. We've taken an hour and a half of prime Friday evening vacation time. But as I said off the top, there is nobody who works harder or puts in more time and is more willing to do this. And this was booked way before I knew you were on vacation. But I really appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks for this. Anytime. I uh, love to be on the show and look forward to the next time I get to spend some time with you. We will do that when the Leafs win the cup, if not before. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.